We put Christmas lights on the Christmas tree, right? We put lights on tractors for parades and semi-trucks and other vehicles. And uh, what are some other ways that we use light at the Christmas season? Candles. What else? Flashlights, okay. Uh, Lights on houses, right? Some of us. What is it? The Yule log, okay. So light is very important this time of year. Not only is actual daylight short here in the northern hemisphere, but uh, light is an image in the scriptures of the fact that God is our light, and he created light. And it's, uh, it's all throughout the scriptures. Uh, we're going to look today about how Christ is the light of the world. But before we do that, we're actually going to kind of talk about that statement right at the end. Um, we get a statement in, that we've already gone through. We've been going through John's gospel, and I just have a, a couple of light scriptures today. And I'm going to give you some some history in the, in the scriptures and around the, the scriptures. Where we find ourselves in our study through John is right at 8.12, actually, because 8.11 wrapped up last week the story of the woman that's caught in adultery, and they're, they're getting ready to stone her. But Jesus says, let the one without sin cast the first stone. And they were just absolutely full of sin, and uh, so were we, you know. But we are, not, we are no longer, as believers, we're no longer identified as sin. Uh, it would be, I believe, factually incorrect for us to refer to one another as sinners. The Bible calls us saints. When Paul the Apostle writes to the early church at Philippi and Corinth, he says, to the saints. And it's funny because, you know, uh, when you do something wrong, you, like if someone were to say, well, or if someone were to say about themselves, I'm no saint. If you're a believer in Christ, you actually are. You think that it's somebody like perfect or whatever, but a saint means someone who's, who's set apart, who's distinct. Uh, I like to say that in order to make a difference in the world, you have to be different. And believing in Jesus is very different than what we're accustomed to by other standards. Are you with me? So we're not sinners. We are saints who sometimes sin because we certainly struggle with, uh, with being human. But what it is to be human is to be like Christ, but nobody's perfectly there, and the scriptures do affirm that, okay? So Christ says, I'm the light of the world. And at this point, before he says, I'm the light of the world, in, in the calendar, before he's crucified, in John 7, 2, it says, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And I already mentioned this when we went there, but the Feast of Booths is the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, and it happens in the fall, in autumn, in October, okay? And that would be October, five or six months before what we celebrate as Easter, which is Jewish Passover, which was the week of Christ's Passion, and Crucifixion, which on our calendar uh, is a variable between March and April. Okay, so we know that it was six months before Jesus was crucified, maybe five months in John 7. And then he says, I'm the light of the world in John chapter 8. And then we come to another scripture in, uh, in John chapter 10 that I'm going to show you in just a second that is called Chanukah or Hanukkah or the festival of lights or the feast of dedication. And this is 
something that was not mentioned in the Old Testament because it celebrates events that happened after the Old Testament was written. So after the book of Malachi, okay? But before Jesus was born, before the events of the New Testament. So let me ask you a question. True or false, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Okay, does let, raise your hands if you think this is true. Okay, raise them high, be bold, don't be uh, double-minded, you know, or uncourageous. If you think it's false, raise your hand. False, Jesus didn't. Okay, no problem, be bold, don't, don't be ashamed, because this is, a, this is a, a difficult question, okay? Um, I'm going to allow you for this to be an open book question. Now, by the way, this is just like kind of information and knowledge. People say that you can go to the scriptures, and you might like this. You can go to the scriptures and use the acrostic speck, S-P-E-C-K. And you can look at any passage of the scripture, and you can use speck, S-P-E-C-K. And you can say, is this scripture revealing a sin that God wants to cleanse out of my life and forgive me for? A sin for S. P, is there a promise in this scripture that I can apply to my life and realize that God's for me in this promise? E, is there an example that I'm learning from a character or, or something that's being said in the scripture that's an example for my life? So sin, promise, example. C would be command. Is there a command that I need to obey in this passage of scripture? Or K, knowledge, which just like the word psychology is doesn't sound like uh, <laughs> the, you know it's K, but it's knowledge. K N O, no. Is there something that I need to know from the Scripture? Today, what it is is kind of like I want you to know something, but there's a good lesson in there as well that you're going to see. So, isn't that kind of cool? Spec S P E C K, um, kind of a neat thing. Uh, it's open book, and a lot of life's questions that. Deal. We're talking just about knowledge today, but I want you to know that you can take your Bible and a lot of things that do deal with sin or promises or example or commands or difficult things that we go through, it's, it is an open book quiz or test or question that when you come up against different conundrums in your relationships, in the workplace, how to deal with somebody, some confusion or your own internal struggles, it's open book. Like, you can choose to say, I'm not going to answer yet. I'm going to go to the Bible and find out what my response should be. And I'll allow it to minister healing to me and restoration and um, allow me to be whole in my spirit. Okay? So that's good news. But since this is open book on a knowledge test, let's look at it. John 10, 22. Uh, it just kind of picks up in the middle of a story, and it says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. You know what Feast of Dedication was? It was Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, the Feast of Dedication. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, which was a particular big structure, covered structure that they had in the giant temple courts in Jerusalem. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So it was winter, it was the feast of dedication. In other words, it's Hanukkah. And let me ask you again the question, 
true or false, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. It appears that he did. It appears that it is true. But this is something that's not in the Old Testament, and it's, it's here in the New Testament. And to the best of my knowledge, that's the only mention of it. Did you know that Hanukkah was in the New Testament? Uh, do you know what Hanukkah is? <laughs> Let, let's talk about what Hanukkah is. What is Hanukkah? Okay, in the Bible, it talks about how the disobedience and the rebellion and all these idols that the Israelites and the, the Judeans brought into their kingdoms because Israel and Judah was separated into two kingdoms with King Solomon's sons, or King Solomon's son. Rehoboam was a very prideful man. And he said, man, I'm going to make this forced labor program that my dad had going. I'm going to make it worse. So Jeroboam comes back from exile in Egypt. He was, a, he was an administrator under King Solomon. And Jeroboam takes over the kingdom of Israel to the north. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, takes Judah. And it says in the scriptures that it was of the Lord. In other words, God was actually okay with the kingdom being split, we think, because Rehoboam was such a bad dude. Um, so eventually, in the year 6, no, I'm sorry, uh, 722 B.C., Israel in purple here gets exiled, taken away to Assyria, these regions up here, the North Tigris River. Uh, 150 years or so later, the southern kingdom of Judah gets taken away in the green to Babylonia, because they're the next kingdom to take over, and Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem, destroys it, takes them away. But then 70 years later, when the Persians take over, they come back. And what's this say? Assyria takes Gentiles to fill Israel. So Israel, the ten tribes are lost, and other peoples uh, come into Israel, and then eventually they become the Samaritans, okay, of the New Testament. Not trying to give you too much detail, but by the time the Persians take over, when Israel is going to go back from places such as Susa and Uruk and all these different places where the Jews lived, they take several trips back to Jerusalem, but it's not all 12 tribes. It's the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah who begin returning uh, in between the, um, in yeah, after, afterwards. I, I'm getting confused just a sec, sorry. Uh, let's go forward. This man is Alexander the Great, and in the year about 331, he's from Macedonia up here, and he begins conquering the Persians who own this big chunk of land the Persians took over from the Babylonians, and before long, Alexander the Great is conquering the whole world. You can see all his exploits. He goes down to Egypt, and he actually comes to Jerusalem in 331 B.C. Uh, the Jews are relatively friendly with him, and he takes over the world. He defeats the Persians, right? And his empire stretches from Macedonia in Europe to uh, Egypt in Africa, the Middle East, all the way over to the Indus River Valley in India, and it becomes, to that point, the largest empire the world had ever seen. Alexander spoke Greek, and so everywhere he conquers, he begins spreading Greek language, Greek art, 
Greek ideas, which were very sophisticated. In, in large part, you know, our society is still built upon many Greek ideas. So he had a huge influence on the history of the world. But if you know history, you know that Alexander died pretty young. And part of the territory that he conquered was Israel. But it's in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a lot of people don't know what happened here. He dies relatively quickly and four kings take over his kingdom. And by the way, this all that I'm talking about was prophesied in the book of Daniel. And so it's actually in our Bible, but more projecting it into the future or, or predicting it and prophesying it in the future, which is pretty astounding. Uh, the biggest kingdoms are Ptolemy's kingdom in the south. Eventually, this will be, you know, this kingdom is, is the kingdom from which Cleopatra comes. You have a couple more insignificant kingdoms and generals that took over because there was four generals. One of them's here, one of them's there. And then you get this giant kingdom called the Seleucid kingdom or the Seleucid kingdom. And it's Greek, but it goes all the way from India over here to Syria. And the area of the Jews at one point is ruled over by the Ptolemies in Egypt. And then it's also ruled over later on by the Seleucids up here in Babylon and present day Iran, Afghanistan. You know, they have a huge kingdom, even up into modern day Turkey. And that's the Seleucid kingdom. They speak Greek. Uh, one of their kings comes to the throne. His name is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Very prideful man. He is a type, he is a type of Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist, but he does some things which partially fulfill what the Antichrist will look like. Epiphanes means like when you have an epiphany, it's a manifestation of God. So he told people, I'm a manifestation of God. And so he's very egotistical, very prideful, very Greek, okay? And what he gets to have happen in the land of the Jews is he begins to reign from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. So this is 175 years before Christ is born. He causes one of the greatest times of heroism as well as trial in all of the history of the Jews, he was pro-Greek, which if, you're, if you look into this stuff, the Greeks call their land, I, I don't know how they say it, but a Hellenist means a Greek. Hellenistic means Greek. And they were, when they were Hellenistic, they wanted to spread, like Alexander did, Greek language, Greek culture, Greek art, Greek organizational systems and poetry and philosophy and all these different things. And they lived very different from the Jews. And so he desired to eliminate the Jewish religion and culture once for all. He attempted to force the Greek way of life upon the Jews, including the worship of the Greek gods rather than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. At first he was peaceful and some of the Jews adopted the Greek way of life. But before long, he began to be violent. Most of the Jews would not abandon their culture and their faith. So the king attacked Jerusalem. He killed 80,000 Jews and sold thousands more into slavery. It became a capital offense to own a copy of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And you know, if you had any of the other books of our Bible too, they would have killed you for that. 
It became a capital offense to circumcise your children. The Greeks killed babies and hung them around their mother's necks to punish the parents. Greek idols, statues of the Greek gods, uh, were set up in the temple court in Jerusalem. The temple chambers, the different rooms of the temple, were turned into places of prostitution. And Antiochus took the bronze altar that was the main place where the Jews would sacrifice a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. And they would also sacrifice bulls and goats and different things on that thing. But it was the main bronze altar where they would sacrifice animals as prescribed in the Old Testament. And Antiochus took that place and made it an altar to Olympian Zeus. And in order to worship Olympian Zeus, he, def- he decided to do the thing that would make the Jews the angriest. He slaughtered pigs on the altar and just got the blood everywhere. And of course, the pig is an unkosher animal for the Jews, and it just absolutely offended them. Um, Let me mention to you that you can read, has anybody, some people will say, don't the Catholics have books in their Bible that we don't have? And the answer is yes. There's a few Bibles out there, like this is one of them, um, where you can get certain Bibles with the Apocrypha in it, like a Catholic Bible, okay? Uh, Or you can buy the Apocrypha independently and read it. And in these books that aren't in the Bible, and as a good Protestant, I would say rightly so, (laughs) they don't belong in the Bible, but some of the books, by reading them, you can just tell as a believer, you can just kind of tell like, hmm, that's different. And as my opinion's always been when I read some of this, it's like I can tell that it's not inspired. Um, But it has good history in it. They're not bad books. And these were things that people in Jesus' day knew about. And among these things that I've been telling you about, they were in the Apocrypha. There's a book called First Maccabees. And it talks about this, this whole thing that Antiochus was doing. And I'm just going to read you a little bit about it. It says that they, for instance, it says, according to the decree of Antiochus, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them, and they hung the infants from their mother's necks. It's, it's horrible stuff. Very great wrath came upon Israel. And then it tells us the story in 1 Maccabees chapter 2, and I'll just read some of it. And this is probably the most important passage in the entire Apocrypha, according to my understanding of this thing. It says that the king's officers, the king being Antiochus IV, Epiphany, uh, the king's officers who were enforcing the apostasy came to the town of Modian to make them offer sacrifice. So this would be sacrifice to pagan gods, right? Uh, Many from Israel came to them, and Mattathias and his sons were assembled. And earlier we learn here that Mattathias is a priestly family, okay? He's he's a priestly family. Um, The king's officers spoke to Mattathias as follows. They say, you are a leader honored and great in this town and supported by sons and brothers. Now be the first to come and do what the king commands as all the Gentiles and the people of Judah and those left in Jerusalem have done. So there were people around them living in Israel who were Gentiles, and they had no problem with the Greek way of life. You know, the Greeks were big into sports. They were, there were all kinds of cultural things that they were into 
The, the Jews, not so much, but, uh, you know, worshiping pagan gods was one of them. It says, then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king. Who wouldn't want that, right? And you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. But Matthias answered and said in a loud voice, even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his commandments, every one of them abandoning the religion of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. When he had finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modin, according to the king's command. When Matthias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger and ran and killed him on the altar. At that same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice and he tore down the altar. Thus he burned with zeal for the law just as Phineas did against Zimri, son of Salu. Talking about earlier in the book of Numbers, a different event. And so thus precipitates civil war led by Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus means the hammer. He's of this family, the Maccabees, the hammers, which rise up against Antiochus IV. And in 164 BC, they win themselves independence and freedom from this uh, tyrant, Antiochus IV, who had slaughtered pigs in the temple. And so this is part of the great tradition of the Jews, that they will be masters of their own destiny in the Holy Land. And this is, again, not, it's before the New Testament, it's after the Old Testament. When they get to the temple precincts with all of the defiling things that had happened in it, they cleanse the temple and they purify it. They get the priests in there and they, you know, they ritually purify it. They actually clean it up, sweep it up, you know, clean things up, and they rededicate it. Part of rededicating the temple inside is lighting up the menorah, the golden lampstand that has seven lamps. It's solid gold, and this was, you know, the, the thing made by uh, the, the craftsmen back in the book of Exodus. But by this time, they actually had a whole bunch of them in the temple that Solomon built. Uh, Solomon did 10 of these menorahs. And, but the temple had been destroyed when they went off to uh, exile. They came back, you know, and, and this Greek king did horrible things, and now they're rededicating it. And they only have enough oil for... Uh, one day to have this these you know lamps burning and it burns olive oil and it had to be a special kind of olive oil uh, that was mixed in a certain way you know the Old Testament talked about that if you if you read there and so they it takes time to get the oil mixed and the oil continued to last one day's worth of oil in the menorah lasted a second day and a third day and a fourth day, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh, and an eighth before they had uh, new oil mixed up, you know, uh, temple approved, 
so that they could do it. And so this celebration of rededicating the temple and having independence from a horrible tyrant is known as the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Lights, because they had oil for one day, but God supernaturally allowed that oil to last eight days. And so this year, Hanukkah, and every year Hanukkah lasts eight days, and this year it's the very day, sometimes it comes earlier in December, sometimes later, but it starts next Sunday night, December 22nd, the day after the winter solstice. Is it the solstice in the winter, right? Not the equinox. Um, the long, you know, it's, it's the beginning of winter. And the next day this year, Hanukkah starts, and it lasts until December 30th on our calendar uh, this year. And so this is the festival that they would celebrate with lights for eight days in December every year for 164 years until Christ was born approximately and then another 30 years and that's where we find Jesus in John chapter 10 celebrating Hanukkah the festival of lights the festival of Jewish independence and yet in Jesus day um, this whole kingdom with the Maccabees they began to become corrupt and before long the year 63 BC they ask the Romans to come in and help them establish uh, a new kingdom because the very kingdom that they had set up grew very corrupt. And eventually, this, this royal family and the high priest and the whole government system ended up, by the time of Jesus, transforming into the kingdom of Herod the Great, who was married into this family of Maccabees and the high priestly family and uh, the whole thing. So it, it was a, a long journey that took a long time. But by the time uh, of Jesus, Jesus is actually the one who fulfills this idea of light, who gives us um, light in our darkness. In 812, not directly related to Hanukkah, but if you didn't know what Hanukkah was, this is what Hanukkah is. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the New Testament tells us that not only is Jesus the light of the world, but when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he told his followers, which includes us, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, when Peter, when they were coming to arrest Jesus, all this history that was behind them, that's why Peter grabbed his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. That's why they wanted the places of power and privilege next to Jesus, because this is the type of kingdom, like the Maccabee set up for Jewish independence, this is what they thought Jesus would do. But Jesus has a different kingdom, a kingdom of light, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom where when we are persecuted, we bless in return. When evil comes against us, we forgive. Uh, and, and it's a different kingdom. And yet even Napoleon remarked 
how all the great conquerors, generals, kings throughout all of history, they've always wanted what only Jesus has received. And that's the heart obedience of his followers. Napoleon thought it was absolutely amazing how down through the centuries, it's Christians whose hearts are filled with the imagination of their king. And yet he's not a king who conquers in the traditional sense. He conquers our will because we willingly lay down by faith our, our will to him, right? Isn't it great to have a king like that? Because when he returns to the earth, everybody who's ever worshipped him and loved him and followed him down through the centuries, as well as the ones who will continue to believe in his name tomorrow and the next day and the next year until the Lord comes, this is a king that we will look to and there will be nobody in the kingdom who will say, I don't like how he does this thing or that thing. It'll be filled with people who realize this is the man who died for my particular sins. This is the man who forgave me. And, and we, we might bring to our own remembrance and, and the Lord, it's not that he can't remember your sins, it's that he chooses not to. But you can think of all the things that we've done wrong, all the ways that we are broken in which we are healed and we are becoming more and more healed. In eternity, we will be entirely forgiven. And we are through Christ right now. But we will be entirely healed. We will be entirely saved because right now we are on the process of being healed, of being saved, of being restored. And that's what God's kingdom is all about, human restoration, human reconciliation. His kingdom is different from every other kingdom that has ever uh, happened on planet Earth or ever will happen on planet Earth. And in Revelation, it talks about that moment in which all the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. And that's what uh, it's about. Let me close with these words from 1 John because this idea of light is very important too. So when you see Christmas lights, you might think of Hanukkah, uh, but think more importantly about the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And when you see Christmas trees and wreaths and different things, you might think about Christmas, but think about how God's kingdom is different from every other kingdom that's ever happened because it's not just about the first arrival of the king, Christmas is about his second arrival. It's about what we look forward to and what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. John says this in 1 John 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 